Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair. I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor of Global Capital. And each week we bring you that which is most interesting from the capital markets. We have a new episode out for free every Friday, so please tell your friends and also subscribe at any good podcast platform. Uh, now, coming up later, a terrifying look at Europe's corporate bond market with our corporate bond reporter, Mike Turner. Uh, but this week, we're recording from Washington, D.C., where John Hay, my usual co-host, and a few of our colleagues are attending the World Bank and IMF annual meetings. Now, it's the first time since the pandemic that the event has taken place in person. And for those unfamiliar with it, it is huge. Now, I'm pleased to report that John and I have uh, lasted a bit longer in D.C. this week than the now former U.K. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, who had to leave early so he could fly back to London to be sacked. The Prime Minister, Liz Truss, accompanied that sacking with the reversal of another of her government's recent tax cuts. This was designed to increase confidence in her leadership and that of the U.K.'s markets. Now, as far as the latter is concerned, boy, did it fail. Speaking to traders on Friday, they could not believe the volatility in the market. The gilt market had rallied a staggering 60 basis points across the curve on Wednesday and Thursday, with everyone's minds on the Bank of England's emergency bond buying programme. But half of those gains were reversed on Friday as leaks of Truss's plan uh, to reverse the tax cuts emerged on Friday morning. Now, these are huge swings for a government bond market, and sources told me that dealers were not prepared to take down any risk, with gilt prices on trading platforms bearing absolutely no relation to the price at which bonds were actually trading hands. Price swings were so wild that traders had no time to put on hedges when they did trade either. Now, this is the stuff of illiquid, opaque markets, or those at the hairier end of the credit spectrum, and that's the exact opposite of what the UK government bond market is supposed to be. There's not much hope of a reprieve in the immediate future either. People in the market I spoke to were divided over whether this was the government's fault or the Bank of England's. Now, the complaint in the market is about the sheer volume of gilts that they're being asked to buy. Some think the government needs to find a different way, other than borrowing, to fund the tens of billions it needs to support its fiscal policy, and others blame what they see as the Bank of England's dogmatic approach to selling the gilts it bought through quantitative easing. It wants to sell £80 billion worth of gilts into the market over the next year, at a time when they think the market will not support it. Now, as we record, Kwarteng's replacement, Jeremy Hunt, the fourth chancellor in four years, is due to reveal a fiscal plan towards the end of the month. But meanwhile, back in Washington, talk about the UK has been unusually dominant. Now, these meetings have a big focus, of course, on development and what the supranational institutions such as the World Bank can do to fund it. So for the UK to feature so prominently in discussions shows what a state the country is in. But like all the best conferences, what goes on around the fringes of the World Bank and IMF meetings is often just as important as what happens in the official events. A huge swathe of the capital markets is here, with days of back-to-back -back meetings booked long in advance as bankers, funding officials, finance ministers, heads of state and lowly journalists such as ourselves scurry from hotel to hotel and venue to venue. Now we'll bring you a full rundown of the highlights of this year's meetings next week. But first, I spoke to Mike Turner about the horrors facing Europe's corporate bond market. Hello. 
Hello, Mike. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Ralph. Thanks for having me. Now, Mike, you've written a story this week about the corporate bond market, which, to be fair, you do every day. Uh, but this one's a bit different. You've been hearing that the particular, that this particular part of the bond market is in for a rather terrible end to the year. Now, why is that? Yeah, it's, it's because we're in earnings season. So um, there's a whole slew of companies um, coming up with their, with their third quarter earnings in the next week or so, two weeks, and people are not expecting it to be particularly good. Ah, right. Now, now, why is that? What are the factors behind that? Well, it's so we're we're seeing the sort of um, crystallisation of um, all the massive macro headwinds that we've had for the back end of this year. So things like supply chain issues, huge energy spikes, um, the war in Ukraine, um, inflation. Uh, I guess. Yeah, inflation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, central and bank rising interest rates. Yeah. yeah, rising interest rates. All all these all these. Um, massive things and now we're actually going to be able to look at the cold hard numbers and what they mean for for corporate issuers okay so i guess there's a lot of um anticipation that uh, earnings will be down or perhaps lower than initially expected but um is there any evidence of that in bond markets at the moment because you know we often talk about these things being priced in um is any of that priced in yet yeah it, it kind of is we're seeing a lot of um within ratings brackets for example so in theory everything that has a triple b rating should you know be pricing around the same sort of spread because they are the same credit risk as far as the ratings agencies are concerned Mm. but you're seeing different spreads for similar deals of like up to 100 basis points which is you know massive it you know could be like a 100 percent increase in in spread so that's differentiation between different industrial sectors is it presumably yeah, between di- between different sectors. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Right, right. And um, so, which which sectors are sort of taking a particular beating at the moment? Well, the, yeah, the ones taking the brunt are the ones that um, use a lot of energy because suddenly their their cost base has rocketed up, um, and they're trying to pass it off onto the consumer. But it's it's quite difficult to do because you know we're facing a recession globally, and inflation is so high that it's hard to then add on top of that the the cost that you're going to to have to put put into um take the cost of energy rises so things like uh chemical the chemicals industry uh uses a lot of energy uh the industrials industry uses a lot of energy and and also one interesting one is utilities um until until now um utilities have had quite good market access and been able to command pretty decent spreads with with smallish new issue premiums but um and the, the reason behind that being that a lot of them are government regulated and have uh, sort of caps and things in place to to help them with the flow of, of uh, energy prices. And also they have these big hedges in place. Um, in the UK, we saw a lot of companies go bankrupt because they didn't have these hedges in place. So the ones that are remaining, they've kind of got it covered with, you know, sort of financial um, uh, nuance. But because the, the problem with this energy crisis is that it's going on for longer than people expected and inflation is obviously so far from transitory now which is what it was meant to be at the end of last year that now um this is going to start having a much more pronounced effect even on companies that are you know financially protected so a, a major focus will be on utilities and what their revenues look like and what their bottom line looks like and to see how much of an impact it's had on them yeah yeah i suppose the thing with hedging is you know these things these risks must become ever more and uneconomically expensive to hedge uh, i had uh, a, a contact of mine who who uh works uh you know just just a just a company but i have some interest rate um exposure on a on a loan 
Um, so not energy, but, you know, it's another type of risk. And uh, he, he uh, or they were looking to put a hedge in place um, before the UK mini budget and had budgeted so much to pay for this hedge and uh, they didn't get their docks in place. Then after the mini budget came out, uh, interest rate market had moved wildly and all of a sudden the company couldn't afford to put the hedge on anymore. And uh, perhaps that's probably possibly the... Um, the same thing for the heavy heavy energy users too, I imagine, perhaps. No, yeah, no doubt there's going to be all sorts of things like this happening uh, behind the scenes that, that chances are no one outside the company will ever know about. Um, mm. But, yeah, we'll be able to see it in clear black and white exactly how much of an effect this kind of stuff's happening uh, having. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so has this shown up in sort of in the secondary market? So um, among the corporate bonds that are out there, are, are spreads moving wider lately on on any of this sort of information it's it's kind of difficult to tell because um well first of all the most of the earnings reports haven't happened yet we're starting to get the banks and we've got something like 33 um corporates reporting next week mostly in the u.s but uh, you know a lot of these guys will issue in euros as well and then and then we'll move on to a more euro focus so a lot of it hasn't happened yet so the reaction hasn't happened yet but um uh there's, there's been a, a sort of general widening in the secondary market. We're, we're wider now than we were during the, the depths of the pandemic, for example. We have been for a, for a couple of weeks, but it's quite hard to unpick that from general rate rising, which will mm. make spreads go up anyway, and um, investors being nervous about corporate credit because because of potentially poor earnings. Yeah, sure, sure. So what's what's the primary market effect of this going to be? Um, first of all, are there still companies that have bonds to issue this year? Um, and uh, what, what are people saying about how issuance will be for them? Yeah, there, there definitely are still companies with bonds to issue. Um, I mean, in the, in the very near term, there are still mandates outstanding. Um, but looking slightly longer during during the september issuance window which is typically one of the busiest along with january because um you know we're past the summer mark and people want to get the rest of their issuance done before the end of the year and get it all wrapped up as quickly as possible um during that issuance window i was speaking to contacts and they were telling me that corporate treasurers were putting deals off because it was so hairy Mm. um it was so volatile that that treasurers were putting off until after this earnings season um, so there could be a little spike in, in deal issuance in November or end, end of October. Um, but then there's also a, a pretty hard stop this year in December because a lot of investors have been quite badly burnt um, buying, buying credit this year. A lot of the indices are down. Um, corporate credit is way down. You've, you've been nearly 20% down uh, over the year, mm. um, beaten only by government bonds. Um, global government bonds so people just want to sort of put a put a cross on this year and just be done with it and not take on any more risk um so it's going to make selling a lot harder because the buyers are are, uh, more um reticent to buy anything yeah i think we can all sympathize with that view um what can issuers do to mitigate some of these risks though i mean i well i guess the first thing is you know uh there's this sort of assumption that they will be able to come perhaps um, later in the year, whereas I think, you know, I think it's fair to say we've had a very uh, open and shut primary market at times this year, and the market isn't always there for issuance. So, um, what what can issuers do to sort of mitigate the the risk of having to price a bond? Yeah, I'm, yeah, gone. 
I think you you were you were sort of getting at it there. But the the key thing at the moment is is just readiness, hmm. because the market opens and closes quite quickly. Um, can happen overnight. Um, if you get a bit of bad news coming from totally left field that people weren't expecting, suddenly all the equity markets are in the red. Credit sells off, and it becomes next to impossible to sell a bond. Um, so just being primed and ready to go into the market as soon as it looks decent, and you're seeing that. Um, last week there were two decent days and corporates absolutely piled in mm. with everything they had to try and try and get deals done. Um, the other thing that is probably important as well is for issuers to manage expectations. They're not going to get long deals. Um, they're not going to get deals that are expensive for investors to buy. So they're going to have to offer quite a bit of spread yeah. and they're not going to get big deals. Yeah. Well, we saw that last week, didn't we? In fact, we talked about your story on the last edition of the podcast of how issuers are bringing, you know, what investors wanted, short duration. Uh, mm. There were some exceptions. And, and keeping deal sizes small to build a, build a bit of price tension and generate a bit of extra demand um, and try and sort of manage pricing that way. It's interesting, though. One of the things that uh, you will often hear in other years is that issuers will simply wait. But that doesn't really seem to be... Well, no one's really talking about that this year. Um, I guess perhaps because the longer-term prospects look even worse than the near-term ones. Yeah, uh, the the thing with waiting for the last five years or so is that you've had the European Central Bank buying bonds. Hmm. So the the windows of the market being shut have been relatively short. Even during the, the worst of the pandemic, it was only um, like a week that the market was shut for. And then it was it was back to it in gangbusters again and people getting fantastic deals away yeah um so but without that now that the european central bank and other central banks have stopped that that bond buying process ignoring uh, the bank of england which has announced more bond buying today to try and um calm the sterling market but in in europe and the us um now that you haven't got that bond buying it it makes it much less of a sure thing that your deals are gonna are gonna be able to land Hmm. So you can you you can wait, but there's a recession coming, and people are spending less money, much less consumer confidence. Um, so you know companies need need money for this this sort of period because um, without it, they they're going to struggle to get the revenue in. Yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, the UK uh, example of um, returning to bond buying through the Bank of England. Now, that, that certainly started out, at least, as a, as a temporary fix to a very specific problem in um, long-dated gilts. It's, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, the, the Federal Reserve in the States or the European Central Bank um, switching on more bond buying just to sort of, you know, smooth the market. Um, it's probably, you know, no one's, no one's sort of suggesting that that could happen, are they, in the near term or medium term? Uh, no, and and the the European Central Bank does have its program for for being able to do exactly that, particularly if the spread between uh, Italian government bonds and German government bonds gets too big. But they haven't said what too big means, so mm. it could be anything. Um, but it's still looking pretty unlikely because obviously, if you're a central bank putting money into um, the economy, then you're stoking inflation, and inflation is the thing that everyone's trying to stop rising at the moment and bring back down. Yeah. Now, um, we talked about uh, small deal sizes and being ready to go. Um, what, what else can, can issuers do to make their, their, their primary market visits a success? I guess 
is anyone sort of undertaking any extra investor relations work or does that does that count as deal preparedness i mean it does it does count as deal preparedness I and mean, you are seeing what you're seeing a bit more of at the moment is um companies will go on a roadshow or a virtual roadshow nowadays yeah. um so that takes two days uh and then in the normal running of the market you would expect the day after a roadshow finishes to see the the deal on screens right because you know they've mm. they've chatted to all the investors they know sort of who wants to buy what so they want to strike while the iron's hot but what you're seeing now is um is quite a lag between roadshows and and then deals coming on screens um so smith and nephew for example i think that was coming close to 10 days between the roadshow ending and, and the deal coming out mm. um because they the the leads and the issuer were just waiting for a day that was decent it was, we were talking about how windows were opening and closing quite sharply and it took that long for the market to look like it was it was acceptable and it worked you know they, they got a great deal away really big book um and you know all success to them so so that's that's the other kind of thing that we'll, we'll probably start seeing more of that is quite a a big change isn't it culturally speaking at least because it used to be the case uh, I think it's fair to say that if there was any sort of delay between your roadshow and bringing a deal then it sort of looked like something was wrong um, to the point where you know people on a roadshow would insist to us that the de- that the roadshow was a non-deal roadshow even if a mandate was announced you know the me- the second the last meeting was finished um, that, yeah, that really is quite a big big shift in behavior isn't it it is, and and the interest to use Smith and nephew again is speaking to people away from the deal. No one suggested, oh, there must have been something going wrong there. Everyone mm. just knows that the market is just so volatile and so um, uh, binary in whether you can come or you can't that you know it would not make it be irresponsible for the leads to push for Smith and nephew to be on screens the day after they finish their roadshow because they probably yeah. wouldn't get a deal done. Well, certainly a busy era then for uh, credit committees and risk approvers and such at the on the buy side. Yeah, absolutely. Busy era for everyone. Yeah. You'll be able to read how companies fare in the bond market once they return from earnings blackouts at globalcapital.com. Also on the site, you'll see all the most important news from the World Bank meetings by clicking on the Global Markets tab at the top left of the screen. Thanks to Mike Turner for joining me for this episode, and as ever to our producer, Gerald Hayes. We'll be back with more from Washington next week. So in the meantime, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.